The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's a groundbreaking and disturbing case. A 20-year-old is on trial in Massachusetts for manslaughter for texting her boyfriend, pushing him to commit suicide when he was wavering and considering going to sleep instead. Prosecutors say in more than 1,000 texts, Michelle Carter not only pressured Conrad Roy to kill himself, but also instructed him on exactly how to poison himself with carbon monoxide, which he did in his pickup truck in the summer of 2014. The state's highest court ruled that prosecutors Prosecutors could go forward with a trial on involuntary manslaughter charges. Carter's defense lawyers say that Roy had long battled depression and had attempted suicide and that Carter herself had a history of emotional instability. Our guest is Rosanna Cavallaro, professor at Suffolk University Law School. Rosanna, when I first heard about the case, I thought it was odd and a stretch, but then I read these very dark texts where she's aggressive, pushing him to commit suicide and bullying him when he wavers. Um, What does the state have to prove? The state has to prove that she understood that her conduct could pose a risk of significant harm to him. And I think that part is relatively straightforward. The, the context, as you said, the, the thing she was urging him to do was to end his life cannot be a greater risk than that. The other thing that they have to prove is that her words caused that. And I think that's really where the complexity is, because we like to understand that each individual controls their own decisions. Our free will is what makes us different from every other animal. Uh, And it's unusual to be able to say that one person causes another to do something as drastic as taking their life. Uh, But I think that the, the, the Commonwealth has made inroads on that. That is, they've demonstrated that the way that she spoke and that the circumstances of him being in and out of the car, as you described, uh, suggests that a judge could find that her words made the difference, that her words really did override his own decision-making. You mentioned a judge. How important is the decision the defense made to waive a jury trial and have a judge decide the case? Well, I think that the defense expects that if they try it to a judge, there's going to be a little bit less of the kind of raw sympathy that we would get with a cross-section of of jurors. Uh, That sympathy is, you know, nothing wrong with it. It's not inappropriate, but it sometimes invites jurors to get to a result that they want without absolutely towing the line on the law. And I think trying to a judge is a way of saying we really want a very careful consideration of whether this could ever be a manslaughter. You know, let's assume that the state proves everything. There's still a real question about whether one person can cause another to make a decision that's life-ending. The defense argued to the state's highest court that this was protected speech and lost. Tell me what the highest court ruled. 
Well, I think the idea is that, you know, there are limits even in the world of speech. You know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater is the famous quote. And I, I can say fire in a lot of different contexts, but if I say it in a way that poses an imminent threat, an imminent risk, then I've lost that freedom to speak. It's not an absolutely unlimited right because, you know, words have effects on others. And in certain contexts, even words and the right to use them can be limited. What's the defense case? Well, I think the defense, you know, is proceeding on several fronts, one of which is to suggest that she herself was impaired. And I think some of the uh, most recent evidence was about what her circumstances are, whether the medicines that she was relying on were clouding her judgment. You know, one of the things that we require in any criminal case is that the person we want to punish is a person who was uh, exercising their own will, their own uh, mens rea, that is, they were thinking about and understood the nature of their own behavior and went ahead with it anyway. So if we have a person who's, you know, this is not her, but in general, a person who's too drunk to make a decision or is um, mentally ill so that they are not in a rational mind frame, then we're not going to punish them or we're not going to punish them precisely the same way. So that's one area that I think that they were exploring with the evidence about her own medications and her own treatment history. Uh, and then I think they're also going to argue, as they did at the close of the Commonwealth's evidence, that even if you take everything the way the Commonwealth wants you to take it, we really should hesitate before saying that uh, one person can, through a phone, through a text, take another person's life, which is you know, a very rough way of saying what manslaughter is. It's an inexact way of saying it. What, what, what the Commonwealth is really saying is she created a risk to him that was so significant and so unreasonable that it deserves punishment. Will that 40-minute phone call where Roy got out of the truck, apparently feeling afraid, but in a phone call afterwards, Carter told a friend she ordered him to get back in the truck, then listened for 20 minutes as he cried in pain and took his last breath and Ah. then died. Will that be important for the judge in determining causation? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the center of it. And what we're really looking at, and the Supreme Judicial Court mentioned this, again, in the abstract, not in connection with this exact evidence, although they had some access to it, was the idea that one person can kind of override another person's will, that he could be so vulnerable and so diminished in terms of his ability to make his own judgments that she could push him, uh, verbally push him to do something that was the thing that ended his life. So the Supreme Judicial Court has recognized that possibility, and I think the evidence is very powerful that, you know, if ever there were a case where those pieces came together, this this could be it. You know, it's it's the technological or modern-day equivalent of somebody down below watching a, a desperate person up on a roof and yelling, jump, you know, jump, do it. Uh, and they did it electronically. She did it through a text. But what it amounts to is pushing him beyond a tipping point where he wasn't able to, if, if the court sees it this way, he wasn't able to decide for himself in that moment. Rosanna, had there been, in about a minute, had there been other cases similar to this, though not exactly the same? 
You know, there have. In fact, the SJC cited a couple of them, and I just was looking at them quickly. Uh, one of them was a terrible case, again, in, involving a domestic situation where husband and wife at odds, and she threatened to kill herself, and he actually made the gun available to her. She was struggling with the gun. He showed her that if she handled it a certain way, she could succeed in pulling the trigger on herself. And after he showed her, she did it, and she ended her life with the gun. And the court found that his cajoling her like that, his making the gun available, putting it there on the floor for her to reach, and then showing her how she could move her arms and legs in such a way that she could fire it on herself, was enough to make him the cause, even though undoubtedly he was not touching the gun when it went off. He could still be viewed as the cause of her suicide. So I think we have the precedent there, the case is about maybe 25 or 30 years old, but nothing in the interim has said that it's not good law. Thank you so much. It's it's a tragic case, but certainly incredibly interesting as a legal matter. That's Rosanna Cavallero, professor at Suffolk University Law School. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.